Hi, my name is Matt Fernley, editor of Battery Materials Review, and here's all the key news in the world of battery materials this month. Welcome to October's edition of Recharge, the podcast by Battery Materials Review. I'm delighted to welcome my co-presenter, Cormac O'Lara, MD of Electrios Energy, and we're going to run through some of the talking points from the last month or so. Hi, Cormac. Hey, Matt. Long time no see. Yep, yep. Over a month this time. Anyway, yeah, we, uh, yeah, we, we are here, even though we are not in the same continent, but uh, we're going to give it a crack. <laughs> yeah, we, we should be used to this by now. Yeah, yeah. I'm on US East Coast time to make my way back towards Asia again, I think. So uh, we'll see. Brilliant. Time difference, yeah. Okay, so quite an interesting month. Tell us what's been sort of going on in China and Asia this month. A little bit quiet in China. Uh, uh, Asia with the Golden Week uh, towards the end of uh, wind down to the Golden Week, so mid yeah. September to the late September. But um, it's been interesting, more on the global global offensive, really, from China Inc. Uh, particularly, I find some interesting projects. Um, it's become a huge hot spot, actually. I'm um, getting a lot of inquiries, but Morocco. Yes, um, yes, I heard about that. It's with the a lot of the precursor and uh, CAM companies yeah. looking very carefully at Morocco, with a view that it's within the free trade area for the IRA. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. You got some uh, Huawei. Uh, sorry, you got CNGR and Huawei uh, for LFP and uh, again, PCAM. And yeah. Cam and, yeah. And then you've got some large North African mining giants in the area as well with the raw materials needed. Yeah. And and of course, you know, Morocco ticks a lot of boxes because I think they've got a, a phosphate mining industry, a big phosphate industry. Uh, and they've also got yeah. a cobalt industry there, which perhaps a lot of yeah. people don't, don't know about. So uh, yeah, that there's some interesting mining stuff in in morocco which could be very helpful for the lfp industry in particular they're looking to go midstream as you mentioned earlier chemical producer cam yeah. materials i believe they're looking in separator materials they're looking for the full ecosystem yeah it will be a bit of a production hub for europe things don't seem to be going swimmingly for the chinese and hungary at the moment so uh it's emerging yeah. plan B. Well, there was a there was a very interesting quote this month, actually, from from LG Energy Solutions, in which they said that it was very difficult for them to get started up. I think it was in Poland because the workers there didn't understand how to work. I mean, they said that the that things were much better now, but at the beginning, they they didn't find that the workers were uh, well trained enough and, and were able to adapt to sort of the different ways of working that you get maybe in Asian operations where you maybe have to take a little bit more responsibility for what you're doing. And I thought that was very interesting. Well, I've been involved in a little bit of work in Poland as well. The big thing the Koreans do, that they don't do, is share, disseminate information amongst their international staff on how to produce cells, the whole, you know, to keep it more in house, definitely in the past. And this uh, comment by the CEO seems like it's the same. When they're building the plants in the US, they were flying plane loads of Korean engineers in who were arriving on holiday visas and yeah. then stayed into the uh, immigration. They were there to work on the new plant, which obviously was a bit of an issue. And I think similar issues throughout the construction are, you know, that factory's up and going since 2017, but um, mm. it's a similar situation in Poland where they're not training the workers 
they've had like over over five years really to get these workers on the same level as the Korean counterparts. Yeah. One of the reasons I think is fear, a fear of training these workers up in LG um, production capabilities. Uh, and then these workers who are European workers will go off and either try and repeat or uh, help the European gigafactories. Well, I mean, that ha you know, that has historically been an issue that there, there's been quite a lot of issues. I, I think I remember a couple of years ago, there was a big case between uh, SK on, I think, and uh, LG Energy Solutions with workers taking intellectual property from from one producer to another. And I guess there is a risk of that taking mm -hmm. best practice from their existing employer to a, to a new employer. Yeah, it's been a big issue with the Korean manufacturers and we'll see the same with the Chinese. You know, when yeah. European gigafactories are looking for CTOs, high level production engineers, they go straight to Korea and Japan and China as well these days. Yeah. Interesting that you mentioned the, the National Day holiday in China, because obviously that's historically quite a strong period for EV sales as well. Have you had any sort of takeaways in terms of how strong EV sales were in, I guess, late September and early October? Interestingly, the, the number for August and September is the exact same for uh, yeah. EVs. It's 589,000. Uh, which is the first time that's happened since I've been looking at it back to back months the same. Relatively flat between August and September. Slight pickup in uh, PHEVs, actually. Yeah. Well, those PHEVs are just going ballistic at the moment in China. I mean, there's so much interest in the segment, mostly BYD, but there are a couple of other manufacturers that are sort of pushing into to PHEVs. I think it's a cool takeaway, but uh, I mean, there's been lots of doom and gloom on EV sales over the last two or three months, but they're still going pretty robustly. I mean, they're, they're growing at what, 30, 35% year on year in China, 30 odd percent year on year in Europe. I don't think the sector's worth all the doom and gloom that we perhaps see, um, see written on it. No need to cry over 30 plus percent in China. It's huge. I mean, way ahead of what we would have thought a few years ago. Yeah, and, and, and offer a really high base, a much higher, you know, base than we would have expected as well. So, so you know, there's there's still big numbers. Um and uh, you know, a little bit of fun in the um in the lithium space as well after the National Day holiday. I think the last couple of days we've seen lithium futures limit up. The restocking cycle that we're expecting sort of seems to be coming to pass. And I think the big question is really how long that restocking cycle lasts for and how low inventories are and therefore what the materiality if if you will is of of the recovery and prices and you know we have a, a big article in lithium prices in um bmr this month we're talking about really who's right and who's wrong on the outlook i mean there's been a lot written by the bulge bracket banks by lithium specialists and we give our own views which i i shan't repeat here you can go ahead and uh, subscribe to bmr if you if you're interested in our views but i think there's a lot of people getting it very wrong on the lithium price and i think it's going to be a very very interesting market for lithium over the next sort of 12 to 18 months a lot of money to be made a lot of money to be lost so uh, yeah i think that's that's uh, you know quite an interesting uh, takeaway there definitely going to be more of a trading market i think than we've seen before yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, it's interesting. Chinese OEMs, because you can't speak for the uh, uh, Western, but they seem to, in some cases, uh, between CHL and uh, BYAD, they're divesting from their lithium assets. Although um, CHL's rebate contracts just came into effect in the, in the third quarter, 
which a number of car companies, I believe, signed up to. And they're still receiving. So this is the 200,000 RMB rebate price of lithium carbonate. And they're still signing up new customers. So it shows that it's a little bullish on the lithium price. They're really important thing. And it comes true in the sell prices in China. With lithium prices, you know, around sub $30 a kilowatt hour, sell prices are that much more affordable. And I think the data for August shows that sell prices for both LFP and five series ternary batteries below $100 a kilowatt hour. And of course, that's the, the, the sort of core break even price. So, I mean, it's really interesting. And I, I think a lot of song and dance has been made about the discounting that we're seeing from OEMs in, in, the, in the EV market in China. But yeah. I'm sure a lot of it's possible because sell prices have actually been falling. So they are actually conserving margins, even though they're cutting selling prices for their products. Might be bad news for the international battery makers if the sell prices in China remain at this price or go lower because they're at $80 per kilowatt hour, 60, 70 is, um, is the prospective price. The cost of manufacturing for European and US manufacturers anywhere between 60 and 80 USD. Just yeah, to make sell. I think that's definitely a fair point. And I mean, I'm, you, you know, I should emphasize that the sort of spots or the sell prices we're seeing in, in China are not, well, almost certainly not for tier one, tier two producers that are producing on contracts, potentially quarterly contracts. They are for sort of lower tier producers for the most part, which, which may be selling a lot more cells and materials on, on the spot market. It does give an interesting guide to the direction of travel. And there is a, you know, a, a one to two quarter lag in terms of material prices, but it's clear yeah. that cell prices are definitely, you know, much, much lower than when they ratcheted up so strongly over 2022 and, and the first half of 2023. Big correction there. Main driving factor last year was the uh, price of lithium carbonate, for sure. A fantastic thing for the industry as well, because, you know, if, if cell prices are sort of sub $100 a, a kilowatt hour, do we really need sodium iron? The energy density yeah. of, of lithium iron, if it's at affordable prices, is is so much better. You know, it's a great thing for the industry if if cell prices can be sort of stabilized around about $100 a kilowatt hour. It highlights that this is a, you know, a viable technology for, for the longer run. Especially with um, sodium being predicted, of course, to be about 50 USD per kilowatt hour if that comes. But, you know, interesting about sodium is that Chinese government have only got around to now and they haven't done it. They're holding committees on drawing up standards for sodium ion cells. So in terms of capacity, resistance, what they should be, how they should be made. Chinese government led this. They lead a lot, not only battery production, but standards of materials also. Like for um, ternary precursors or CAM materials, Chinese government have standards. European Commission doesn't have it. US government doesn't have it. Just to demonstrate just how far behind sodium really is if the Chinese government are only getting around to now to yeah. develop standards for this cell. So I think it's still uh, a long way off. Obviously, the European government is sort of moving in the new legislation, which uh, deals with the sort of um, uh, rules of origin and, and levels of recycling in, in, in cathode materials going forward and anode materials, to be fair as well, is a sort of an initial move towards establishing standards. But uh, yeah, you're right. I mean, yeah. outside China, there isn't very much. Yeah, they, I mean, yeah, I'm, I'm referring to technical and engineering standards. Yeah, so what you described there, that's not a technical engineering standard, but how much 
recycled material. But yeah, interesting though, I haven't seen a similar piece of legislation on the Chinese side in terms of required amount of recycled material in uh, batteries. So that'd be interesting to keep an eye out for that. Yeah. Um, yeah. See if they follow suit. Let's come back to something that we talked about sort of uh, very briefly in last month's podcast, which was this move by the EU to clamp down or to initiate an investigation, effectively an anti-dumping investigation into exports of, of Chinese EVs into Europe. Any more thoughts on that? Yeah, yeah, it's quite interesting for what it means for the Europe, the Euro, uh, European Commission or Europe in general, as you know, a large, large amount of uh, EVs are imported from China, and they're now from Chinese EV makers. One of note, of course, is Dacia Spring, which is made in Hubei Province and by Dongfeng uh, and uh, and Renault. Well, and obviously Tesla as well. And Tesla, of course, but that's sometimes removed out of the equation. But yeah. The, the Model 3 Model Y are the top two uh, selling EVs in Europe, right? Then you have the more, kind of more premium ba- brands. You have uh, Lincoln Co, Polster. You have these uh, kind of European Chinese JVs, more or less. Um, uh, yeah. On the, um, it's interesting to see what will happen when the Chinese start importing their smaller cars, the uh, yeah. so-called mini EVs. So, I mean, for me, that that's a really important consideration because really no one else is making smaller vehicles threaten who are they going to threaten with that yeah so so far the byd is like importing some very large cars um which could be seen by the the big three in german and and germany as competitors you know you get the byd han it's got Mm. like ev pack a battery pack or somewhere between 70 and 85 kilowatt hours depending on which one you get pretty big car pretty big pack that's directly competing with the um larger german oems i mean i'd like to see byd moving the seagull into europe because quite frankly i don't think there's anything really to compete with that as car and i I mean i don't really see you know in terms of this this eu investigation i think it's very dangerous because the only country that's really manufacturing affordable evs at the moment for affordable prices for mass market consumers is china and if you make those you know, if you tax those EVs so they're no longer affordable, you're effectively taking the mass market away from electric vehicles. But surely as European governments, you want mass market buyers to be buying electric vehicles. That's the whole point about going electric. So I just worry that by going down this route, when, by the way, the car makers didn't really want them to go down this route, they are raising the possibility, first of all, of tip for that tit-for-tat trade war with with China, and secondly, that they won't get to where they want to get to, which is having a viable mass-market electric vehicle industry in Europe. Our quality, right? I, I think it's safe to say the Chinese, other, other than Tesla, which is the best thing that ever happened to Chinese EV, in, in, EV industry in 2019 when they opened the Shanghai factory or started to build it, you know, that drove the whole Chinese EV industry, not just on the battery side, but also on the digital side. And this is where much, more, many of the European OEMs lag behind. And them themselves are even investing in um, uh, the Chinese EV makers, for example. Volkswagen picked up a big stake in, um, is it Neo or Lioto? I forget now, a couple of months ago. Volkswagen definitely picked up a, a, a stake in one of the Chinese EV makers. Volkswagen is, 
uh, hoping to um, get some improvements, perhaps on the software side, because I've heard that they're, you know, they they really need a leg up on the software yeah, side. Yeah. It was Xpeng. I remember that it was Xpeng. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, and Xpeng is not even one of the bigger uh, Chinese EV startups, probably top five. But you know, you got Neo, you have Ideally. So, but it's mostly yeah. So there's the strategy in China is electrify and digify. European OEMs got around to the electrify bit. I think they're still way behind in digify, uh, di- digitized side uh, side of things, mm-hmm. EVs. And and this is where the there was a lot of lessons learned for the Chinese EV startups when um, Tesla opened up. Yeah, I mean, I I, I think that the, the European OEMs have got a lot of catching up to do on the tech side, not not on the vehicle manufacturing side, but on the tech side. And I worry that this this legislation or this investigation is just a little bit too early so i mean watch this space we don't even know how long the investigation will take but i do think that there is a risk of uh tit for tat action between the eu and the chinese which is not going to be particularly helpful to the industry yeah especially when many european vehicles are exported to china and sell there pretty big market for some of the big german players there I don't think there's been much feedback from Tesla about this, but I remember when, you know, I think when it was first discussed that Tesla was going to export their uh, made in China vehicles to Europe, a lot of people were like, oh, I would never drive a made in China. The sentiment's totally changed. Many consumers in Europe are more than willing to buy uh, Chinese EVs, good high quality uh, car, really. In terms of numbers, as you said, the Germans know how to make a car, but they technically have not produced as many EVs as the Chinese, so yeah, in terms of yeah. technical efficiency, I'll, I'll put it with the Chinese for EV manufacturing. I mean, watch this space, but a little bit concerning. One other thing, which I think is turning into a little bit of a recurring theme in the space, which I think uh, is very important to keep an eye on, is a number of lithium project developers came out with um, pretty substantial capex increases during September, and Allchem was one. Lion Town also um, developing projects in in Western Australia, capex and opex increases um, globally, and I think that this is something that that you know we as people who are looking at the raw material space have to be aware of. That there have been some pretty lowball capex estimates for new projects, yeah. and it, it looks like people are structurally underestimating how much new projects are going to cost and you know that's all very well in a market where lithium prices are at sort of 70 to 80 dollars a kilogram but when lithium prices come down to sort of 20 possibly below 20 dollars a kilogram or other raw material prices making these sort of mistakes should we call them in estimations are are key and i think the capital intensity of all of the battery raw material investments is rising and i think we still have an environment where we're looking for very very substantial growth in raw materials capacity over the next five to ten years or so and i just think that people are underestimating the potential for cost inflation of both capex and opex and what that does to the cost curve it pushes up the cost curve because if your if your cost of development is much higher you have to generate a margin on that development certainly if you're developing in the western world then you need your selling prices to be higher otherwise you can't operate so i think that people need to be realistic about how the cost curve works for all of these battery raw materials going forward 
and uh, particularly developers need to be realistic as well because you know if i'm an investor i don't want to invest in a project which gets to the last hurdle and comes into production and then somebody turns around and has to do an emergency fundraising for sort of like 100 million and then i find that the cost of operation is above the marginal cost of production for the industry and really that that asset should not have come into production so I think, um, you know, we're going to have an issue going forward where it's really, really important that people get their their studies right. And certainly I see some early stage studies coming out at the moment, which quite frankly are not worth the paper they're printed on. Yeah, yeah. It's a disaster for upstream investment for sure. This is, I think this is one of the main reasons that the investment is staying out of the sector because a lot of the companies, if it's equity investors, which has gone a little bit quiet, don't aren't familiar with the space. It, in fact, it's a new space. Uh, there's not really much to reference on in terms of capex and different projects, different regions, Brian, Spodge. I mean, you're in Latin America, you're in Africa, you're in Canada. I mean, there's a lot to look at, and there's a big difference in the capex and these projects. And I think it's scaring off a lot of investors. The industry is not very opaque. It's a lot of hype again, which is a big problem in the industry. Battery prices are high. Everybody's opening or finding a lithium project. And now we're kind of coming down to reality or what we might see in terms of lithium uh, pricing over the next three or four years. I think we can envision a high and a low at least of where we're going to be. And uh, I think it makes sense to reevaluate a lot of these projects. When you're in a super cycle, which this is, I don't think anyone's denying it's a super cycle. But at the end of the day, it comes back to either long life low cost projects that can run really through the whole of the cycle yeah. or projects that are close to infrastructure and can benefit from good infrastructure whether that's power or, or road or whatever and you know i see a lot of things being developed in the middle of nowhere now it's fine projects that were around two three four five years ago that, that could be close to coming into production now-ish but early stage projects that are being looked at now that are in the middle of nowhere, I think maybe investors need to have another quite close look and 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 decide whether that's actually going to be viable in the long run. Yeah. I mean, don't think it's just in the upstream where we see, you know, capital overruns. We've obviously seen a lot of capital overruns in the cell manufacturing space and, and in the EV manufacturing space as well. So it's not just an upstream issue, but it is a, a particularly important thing in the upstream given the huge capital intensity of these industries when you mentioned downstream you can take any price you can read on a build out of a gigafactory anywhere in the world is with a pinch of salt because i'm in it every day where these companies are come up with these numbers and i mean they're not the final numbers at all in terms of where you end up after your two-year build you see a huge um, regional differentiation as well, don't you? I mean, it, it's, it's probably costing, what, a couple of billion to, to build a gigafactory in China, but could easily be costing three or four billion to build a gigafactory in, in the US or Europe So for, for similar sizes. So I think you have to be aware of country and region where you're operating. And I think one of the, one of the big issues for Europe, I think, is that they're in, in danger of over-regulating the space too early on and making it very difficult for these companies to operate and indeed to build. I think that's something that the EU needs to be a little bit wary about because it's a global industry. Yeah. Yeah. The overregulation is definitely proven to be an issue. I think um, the European Auto Manufacturers Association has asked 
especially for the UK and EU, a little rollback on country of origin of materials, for example, which is yeah. very tight regulation and in the terms of the, of, of the uh, legislation, not viable for Europe and, and our UK to come up with these materials, battery materials uh, in, in, the, in, in the time space. And you can you see with uh, Rishi Sunak, for example, uh, rolling back uh, the uh, ICE ban from 2030 yeah. to 2035. This is something that uh, also we talk about in this year's review in terms of the political pushback and some of these energy transition aims and you know what what it could mean for a lot of companies in this space but uh i mean i certainly these country of origin rules that the eu is going to bring in i mean they look totally unenforceable at the moment i mean i think they've asked for a three-year delay but realistically they could ask for a seven or eight year delay and we still wouldn't be there i don't think so it's going to be very difficult and i mean that's just one example of over regulation i think in in europe but uh they definitely make it more difficult to operate than it needs to be. Tesla Shanghai and Tesla Berlin and Brandenburg was initiated at the same time. And Tesla Shanghai is already producing a million EVs a year out of that facility. How many EVs are producing out of Tesla Berlin? Quite a few less, quite a few less. Um, and I, I mean, Tesla Shanghai, I think, was operating after, what, two years? And it took what four four plus four five years before tesla berlin was operating so yeah i think that probably tells you everything you need to we will pause it there and i'm sure we'll have a, a lot to uh, further discuss next month so i say thanks very much to cormac for his time Thank thanks you. matt appreciate it thanks. and uh, we'll speak next month Bye. So that brings us to the end of the podcast for October. As always, you can get more detail in any of the topics we've discussed and indeed many more that we don't have time to discuss on a monthly basis in the latest issue of Battery Materials Review, which you can find on our website at www.batterymaterialsreview.com. I'm Matt Fernley, editor of Battery Materials Review, and this has been Recharge. Thanks for listening.